This is episode 19 of the Regression Health Podcast. I'm here with uh, researcher Jamie Tartar. Jamie, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Well, thank you for having me on your podcast. It's exciting. I'm uh, Jamie Tartar. I'm a professor of neuroscience at Nova Southeastern University. I'm also the president and co-founder of the Society for Neurosports, which is a nonprofit organization where we aim to kind of put together exercise science and neuroscience into a new academic field. Yeah, fascinating. I was just looking more into your background and it just reminded me, so for my uh, research project uh, in, in my postgrad, I, I looked at executive functioning and um, let me let me try and remember. So it's uh, inhibition. <laughs> I work on your executive function. <laughs> exactly, you gotta, gotta stay on top of it. Uh, inhibition, task switching, and then working memory. Is that the three core? Yeah, yeah, it's sort of like the CEO of the brain working through the prefrontal cortex. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's so interesting to think if you look at uh, your your thoughts or just how you view things through that lens, like how much you can change things or how much they're affected. Um, for example, you're trying to do like uh, a task at work, but you keep switching tasks. Well, inevitably, mm-hmm. that's going to be harder because your task switching too much, for example. Right. And I think a lot a lot of people think that they're better at that than they are. You know, we do lots of um, those you know, similar types of measurements in our lab, looking at executive functions, um, attention, task switching, processing speed. And we have a hard time recognizing that as far as your brain is concerned, your ability to pay attention is the most expensive thing your brain can do in any given time. And we think that we're really good at slicing up that sort of attentional pie that we can have this going on in the background, your spreadsheet open, like randomly checking our email. But at the same time, we're really bad at judging our own cognitive state at any moment in time. So oftentimes we see these sort of cognitive failures and attentional failures really just as a byproduct of the fact that we have so many things grabbing our attentional spotlight. And it really is only meant to shine on one thing at one time. Attention's expensive and your brain's not going to give it up very easily. Yeah, so single tasking is underrated, I think. Yeah, Yeah. well, we think we all think we're good at multitasking, but the research proves that not to be true for very many people. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So uh, your your research project, you've done a lot and uh, you did some in your time at Harvard um, in the the sleep school. Is that right? Would you talk just a little bit about that and, you know, the importance of sleep and and things you learned? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I still do sleep research. I just do it on um, bipedal organisms now. humans (laughs) humans <laughs> where is it harvard and took my phd i, I worked pretty much solely uh in, in rodents primarily rats which was really rewarding most neuroscientists so i'm a weird neuroscientist and that i work with humans most neuroscientists work with non-human animals because of the fact that we need to look at brains we can't take the brains out of humans we get arrested and go to jail <laughs> if we try to do that so i, I know it's frustrating and, and a lot of my exercise science friends they, they don't love animal research, but I don't think they appreciate the fact that for this field, you have to, there's really no other way. You, you can't do a brain biopsy, like you can like a, you know, a little muscle punch. So it, it's really easy to study uh, the neural underpinnings of, for example, sleep and stress and these things that I used to study by, you know, we would physically go in there and record from individual neurons after we kept them awake all night. So some of that work, we show that even if you fragment their sleep, so this is something that would emulate obstructive sleep apnea or people who wake up a lot at night. So we were sort of forcing the rats to wake up. And then we had sort of a control condition for the movement. And what we found was that they had really poor memory the next day on these tasks of sort of spatial navigation. And when I actually looked at their brain, the mechanism that allows them to form memories, this is something called long-term potentiation, that was pretty much abolished. They just didn't have the ability to form a memory at the level of the synapse. And that was just after one night of fragmented sleep. And certainly that recovers with, with makeup sleep, but it was pretty alarming to us that just one night of poor sleep could impair memory like that. Really interesting. So if somebody like myself, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with my sleep in that I know it could be better. So an extra motivation uh, to sleep better would be that your long-term memory will be strengthened um, and you'll have like a guess, like a greater reserve of memories to pull from in your day-to-day life. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I think pretty much anything that's wrong with you, <laughs> sleeping well is gonna either make it a little bit better 
or a little bit worse if you're not sleeping well. So sleep is really the time when memories are consolidated. So all of those things that you're learning during the day, they get consolidated during sleep. So it's, it's critical for all kinds of memory, you know, motor memory, declarative memory. So we absolutely need to sleep for have a healthy memory. So this is a health podcast and I try to cover pretty much any area of health. So uh, what area of health, is there anywhere, any area of health that isn't touched by our sleep that, you know, you know, good or bad sleep, you're, you're, you're okay? Or is it literally every area of your health? As one of my friends, colleagues likes to say, sleep is the Swiss army knife of health. And I think that's, that's perfect. I mean, there's pretty much no area of health that isn't restored by sleep, especially, you know, neural processes, you know, sleep, you, your brain shuts down and it shuts down going as slow as, you know, one Hertz, you know, one to four Hertz in the deepest stages of sleep. And that's for a reason, right? The, your brain is extremely metabolically expensive. It's using about 20% of the energy that's used in your body, even though it only weighs about <laughs> 3%. So all day, all this metabolic activity is going on and you just have no way of cleaning out that, for example, all that metabolic waste that builds up, right? It's building, building up all day long. Your brain doesn't have a lymphatic system to drain it out. So it's really during sleep, especially those deep, deep stages of sleep, that's when the brain actually has an opportunity to clean itself and it'll exchange that interstitial fluid with the cerebral spinal fluid and kind of get rid of some of those toxic waste products and toxic proteins that have been building up. Which is, you know, why we see that relationship, you know, with a lifetime of poor sleep and neurodegenerative diseases, you know, very clear relationship. So, so everything, you know, growth hormone is released during sleep. Testosterone is released during sleep. <laughs> so if you want to have gains, you got to sleep. <laughs> um, your hormone systems, you know, your hypothalamus controls the pituitary release of hormones. That's really entrained by the internal clock, the suprachiasmatic nucleus. So once, once you have circadian misalignment, you have a misalignment of these major hormone systems. So it really is absolutely critical to health. You had me at gains. When you talked about the testosterone, <laughs> the gains, I was sold. And, well, if you look at some of those charts, the longer you sleep, you get, because testosterone really is a sort of time to REM sleep cycle. So you get an advantage for sleeping eight hours versus like four hours. Yeah. And you hear you recover when you sleep, but you've given all the details there, like, you know, just clearing out the waste products. Like so much stuff happens when you sleep. It's, it's absolutely essential. Yeah. I mean, you, we think of it as kind of a waste of time, but, you know, spend a third of your life doing it. And if, if it wasn't important, that would be like the biggest mistake evolution ever made <laughs> to spend a third of your life doing something ridiculous. Yeah. I love when I, when I get reminded of that fact that we spend a third of our life sleeping and it's like, you know, uh, human nature evolution or whatever you want to call it is, is like, uh, in place for a reason. It's, it's very powerful. And, um, that's how important sleep is that it takes up that much time. It should be probably our number one priority when it, when it comes to health. Is that fair to say? I mean, I'm super biased. I'm in the business of like selling sleep. I don't work, I'm not a shill for big sleep, <laughs> but I think it's the, it's one of the easiest things people can do to, to improve their health and performance. You know, you can increase your protein intake. You can have a great diet. And most people who want to be healthy are doing that anyway. But I think they, there's really not a clear understanding of just how much sleep does for overall health and wellness. Yeah, so is there any kind of like, I guess, simple kind of like tips you have for how people can improve their sleep or any kind of habits you notice among people who, who sleep well across the lifespan? Sure, well, I think a lot of it is just, it's we don't wanna to go to sleep at night, especially if you're young. Um, I, you know, when I was young, I was in the army and I thought it was really cool to stay up really late. Everybody did. When I was in college, it was the same thing. Everybody wants to stay up really late. And when you're young, it's easier for you to do that, right? It's much easier for young people in their twenties and, and sometimes in their thirties to stay awake than, than older adults. So a lot of it is what's, what we talk about is chronic sleep restriction that we're purposefully staying up late at night to increase the number of hours that we have to do the activities that we want to do, like watch TV and study and read and, and be on our phone. So a lot of it is just habit, you know, that habit of not understanding and appreciating sleep as basic hygiene, right? So one of the things that we would want to do is first of all, just change that mindset and think of sleep as a basic hygiene, the same way we think about going to the gym, like we're willing to spend an extra hour going to the gym and we should be able to also spend that time sleeping. It's always surprising because, you know, and everybody does this because we don't understand how important it is for our health we kind of like brag about having like really crappy sleep. <laughs> so you probably know people that like, oh, I'm sick. I'm so busy. I, I'm so busy. I'm only sleeping six hours a night. You know, I'm just, I'm getting work done getting things done. I'm 
I'm starting my new business, only sleeping five hours a night. And they kind of wear that as a badge of honor and brag about how little they sleep as a way of informing the other person that they're, you know, super, super amazing at work. So I think we need to stop. We need to stop doing that, first of all. <laughs> um, you know, stop, stop thinking about sleep deprivation and sleep restriction as, as that kind of badge of honor. Yeah, it'd be frightening to see the quality of work, you know, kind of pre-sleep restriction to like post-sleep restriction. And I think it'd be interesting to define sleep restriction. So like, I guess, what would you define uh, undersleeping as? Like, what would be the kind of the threshold across? Sure. So most people need seven to nine hours of sleep. Um, so we can we can round that to eight. Um, but we we also want to keep in mind that there's individual differences. Some people biologically can get by um, fewer hours of sleep. They're just just really rare. It's like the person who's six foot five. They they exist, <laughs> but you don't see them very often. So I think for most people, you know, assume eight. And um, so most people do need eight hours. And when we do these studies, these sleep restriction studies. We can't really control how long somebody sleeps, but we control how, how long they're in bed. So you'll look at time in bed studies, time in bed of four hours, time in bed of six hours, time in bed of eight hours. And when people are given that six hour sleep opportunity, you really see pretty significant um, changes. And most of those changes have to do with attention, right? Lapses in attention, because again, it's usually like kind of the first thing to go. So those attentional lapses and changes in cognition happen with six hours in bed. So you re really want to start, you know, trying to get up closer to that seven hours. And so someone who's sleep restricted, you know, they might sleep five hours on Monday, four hours on Tuesday, seven on Wednesday, you know, six on Thursday, up till 2 a.m. on Friday. But then they've incurred a sleep debt all week. And just like any debt, it's, it has to be paid off. So usually what we do is we'll just oversleep on the weekends. So then on the weekend, they might sleep until like 10 or 11 a.m. and then start the process again. You know, during the week, and that's that's pretty typical chronic sleep restriction that, that a lot of people experience. And is that effective? Like, can you make up sleep debt over, we'll say, one or two nights in that kind of fashion? When you sleep in, when you pay off your sleep debt, you'll recover um, those cognitive detriments that you've been building up. So once you pay off your sleep debt, you'll, your your tension will be better. Everything will be sort of cognitively um, back online emotionally, because you also get sort of a lot, a lot of emotion changes with sleep loss, but you can't go back and you can never recover the metabolic deprivation. So the, the, there's, those were the hours that you weren't cleaning your brain while you were asleep. So you can't recover that, that that's over, but you can recover some of those neurobehavioral functions, so emotion and cognitive processing. Okay, because uh, those will be physical as opposed to emotional, right? Well, you'll, you'll be fine emotionally. Um, so with sleep loss, if we keep somebody up all night or we give them chronic sleep restriction, they'll have some cognitive errors, but they'll also have some emotional impairments as well. Um, so we talk, what we show in our lab is that, and other people have shown, it's really emotional instability with sleep loss. So once they sleep in, those things will be recovered, the neurobehavioral functions, but the metabolic consequences can't really be recovered because they can't go back and have cleaned out their brain for those two or three hours. Um, during the week, so that the, the the those metabolic waste products will have been will have will have built up, and it's really a lifetime of that that starts to get us into trouble. Got it. Yeah. So the kind of the window for metabolic processes is shorter than for emotional. So. Yeah. Well, you 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 can never recover it. Okay. Um, because you you've missed that time. What. However, you know, we don't want, don't want to scare anybody. Like certainly all of us have crappy sleep. <laughs> you know, I have horrible sleep from time to time. We, we aim to get eight hours of sleep a night and you don't have to, right? We really want to think about this idea that small changes improving your sleep will have sort of parallel changes in health. So if you can get, if you're sleeping six hours and, and you can push that up to 6.5, that's great, right? That's, you're, you're not a failing. If you can, you know, go from having four hours of time in bed to six, like any, any increment we can make towards better sleep is good, right? Because it's not like you have to hit eight hours to get all of these benefits. Small changes in sleep relate to small changes in behavior and performance. Right. Yeah. So let's say, you know, like the example you gave yourself when you were younger and you didn't sleep as much, uh, let's just say you didn't sleep well up to the age of 30, for example, I'm 29. So, and then after that, can you, can you get benefits 
I guess, and can you, is it never too late to improve your sleep? It's kind of, I guess, what I'm asking. Is that possible? It's never too late to improve your sleep. You can always, it's, well, young brains are just good. Like your young brains are young brains. So they're always going to be healthier. It's, you know, especially as we, as we age, we definitely want to be more aware of sleeping and, and, and health. This is when you know, your attention starts to plummet anyway, when you, when you get a little bit older, like my working memory, I'm in my forties now and I walk, sometimes I walk in a room, I have no idea what I'm doing in there. Like those moments happen a little bit more off. Um, and I think that the larger answer to your question is we don't really know because those longitudinal studies just don't exist. What we do, because we've only known about the brain cleaning system for about six or seven years. Like, and this is kind of new information. This is what's called the glymphatic system. Um, the, you know, the paper that showed that it's specifically clearing out beta amyloid, the protein involved in Alzheimer's. I think that paper is like maybe five years old. Um, so this is kind of new information. What we know is that a, a lifetime of poor sleep is associated with all kinds of deleterious health outcomes. So the, the, the sooner you can get better quality sleep, certainly the better it is. Very interesting. And is there any specific health conditions that people should be aware of that they can avoid by sleeping more? Like this definitely, the risk is very strongly connected to this health outcome over the lifespan. I'm assuming there's a lot, but is there any really like ones that stand out, you know? Yeah, I think like neurodegenerative diseases are associated with a lifetime of poor sleep and um, not necessarily sleep in particular, um, but, you know, we do see like shift workers have increased incidence of cancers. Um, there was a nurse's health study that showed a lot of nurses that work, shift work, were having increased incidence of breast cancer. Um, the idea there is it may not necessarily be related to their sleep as much as it's related to light at night. So being careful about light exposure when you should be asleep. And this idea of light at night potentially being a carcinogen to us. So, so I think we would want to be aware of that. And if you are already trying to sleep at night, like I do, we want to be careful about, especially the short wavelength light. So sometimes we see that as blue light. Um, because there are little cells in your eyes and your retina and their only job is to respond to light, specifically short wavelength light. So they, these little cells communicate directly to the clock in your brain and then that communicates directly to the pineal gland. So basically the, these little cells in your eye detect light and they say, oh, there's no light, release melatonin or, oh, there's light. <laughs> don't, re don't release melatonin. That's like all they do all day long. <laughs> so. When you have light on at night, you have melatonin suppression. And melatonin is an antioxidant, it's an anti-inflammatory. So there are some downstream consequences to having chronic suppression of melatonin at night. Yeah, the, the supplement that's quite popular nowadays. So let's say you're like, you know, oh, it's 1030. I've been, you know, on the, the screens all day or whatever, and up till 10 o'clock, uh, the light's been on in the house. I'm just gonna take this melatonin at 1030. Does that work the same way? or does life need to interact differently with, with your eyes? I mean, you, you can, you can take melatonin. Um, there's, there's a lot of in individual differences in how people respond to it. Um, melatonin is great, especially if you need to reset your circadian rhythm. So like my circadian rhythm, I naturally want to go to bed at, at midnight, which, but I have like high school kids and that doesn't work with their schedule. So for example, I'll take melatonin at 8 p.m. to kind of shift, shift my schedule little bit closer to like the Atlantic Ocean because I'm in Florida. So I kind of want to sleep as if I was living in the mid-Atlantic Ocean. Um, melatonin does a good job of helping to reset your circadian rhythm, especially if you can take it, you know, I have to take it like every day at like 8 p.m. And after a few days, I'll start to get tired earlier in the night. Um, it's great when you're traveling, especially if you're going from west to east. Um, you know, you want, want to go to bed a little bit earlier, sometimes a lot earlier. And that's where melatonin can come in, come in handy. You know, east, that's what we say, like east to west is best for sleep. If you can travel east to west, you always do a little bit better with sleep. West to east is the least. You don't want to go that direction. <laughs> but if you do, that's where melatonin can come in handy. Um, the, the ability of melatonin to put you directly to sleep, th there's a lot of individual differences and a lot of individual differences in the specific dose that works, slow release versus fast release. Um, a lot of times people take, you know, pretty high doses, like 10 milligrams of melatonin, and then they find that that can trigger these like really vivid, bizarre dreams or even a little bit of sleep inertia the next day. So, you know, with melatonin, 
certainly it can't hurt you, but it's something that you would want to start with a very, very low dose and see how it works for you over, over time. Great. So I can't remember what exactly the side effect was that I heard. I think it was in mice as well, where it's like it suppresses something. There, there's some side effect to melatonin, um, maybe something like testosterone suppresses testosterone or something along those lines. But uh, I guess uh, for chronic use of melatonin and like at high doses, because I know yeah. I've seen tablets that are like five milligrams, 10 milligrams. And I know like the recommended dose is somewhere around like five uh like half a milligram or something along those lines. So um, if you were taking too much for too often, would there be any potential side effects? I mean, there's, there aren't any, there's no papers that I can think of that show long-term detrimental consequences. There's some studies, bizarrely, that show like really high doses of melatonin seem to help with neurodegenerative diseases um, for reasons I don't think anybody completely understands, but um, it's, it's, I think melatonin is one of those things that if you take it and, and it helps you and it works for you and you're sleeping better, that's great. But just recognize that not everybody responds to it. But certainly, you know, you're right, is, is you really want to be careful about those high doses. And, and, you know, we're doing a study right now trying to trying to use like a melatonin spray to put people back to sleep. And we're using a really, really low dose, like 0.5 milligrams. Um, so I think everybody's different. That's why these kind of one size fit all approaches, you know, sometimes like you know, on Instagram or on social media, it's like, oh, do this thing. It's great for everybody, but it's never great for everybody. We're all, we're all a little bit different and we all have different neurochemistry and idiosyncrasies that make us the amazing people we are. And so that, that's, you know, the same thing applies when it comes to supplements. Everyone's going to respond a little bit differently. Yeah. I feel as though it's important to know your own strengths and weaknesses, you know, as in, you know, you need uh, to go to sleep at eight, but your body likes to go to sleep at 12. So you're accounting for that. And if, uh, I go to, if I take a melatonin at eight, I'll go to sleep at 10. <laughs> so I'm just trying oh. to get, <laughs> know thyself. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. How is um, you compared to you? <laughs> so then outside of your work on sleep, you, you do some research on, on stress and, and human performance. Could you speak a little bit about uh, the other work you do as well? Sure. And then go, with sleep too, I do want to say the other thing you can do just for sleep hygiene is... Um, sure. One of the other things we didn't mention is lowering, lowering your temperature at night too. Like if you lower your core body temperature, that can also help you go to sleep. There's all kinds of sleep tips, um, but you, you can read them online too. <laughs> um, yeah, so we do a lot of work with, with I actually started out studying stress during my, my PhD. I did a lot of work on neurobiology of stress, but that sort of naturally became doing a postdoc in sleep because sleep and stress are really closely related to each other. The, a lot of people have insomnia, but a lot of people have insomnia because they're stressed and they have a lot of anxiety. So, you know, for, for many of us that, you know, laying down at night and everything's quiet, it's the first time that we have that opportunity to kind of be alone with our thoughts. And that's where we start to ruminate on things and, 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 and not sleep. So they're, they're really closely related to each other. But for, for humans, it's, it's super interesting because unlike other animals, and this is why it gets frustrating to study stress in non-human animals, because as humans, we have this incredible ability to ruminate on things that other animals just don't do. So most of the stress that we experience, oddly, is internally driven. You know, we're, we don't live in a, in a world where we're getting chased down by lions and we have our conspecifics trying to fight us. Like you probably don't have to, I don't know if you can remember the last time you had to hunt down a meal. <laughs> <laughs> or you were worried about where you were going to get you know, water or you were having to beat somebody up to mate or mating opportunities. That, that stuff doesn't really exist. And yet we still succumb to all kinds of stress-related diseases and, and health consequences. So for humans, the most of the stress we experience isn't physical stress, it's psychological stress. And, and, and that's really ruminating and worrying about these daily life hassles that we all experience. Um, unlike physical stress, we have you know, two different stress response systems, really, that sort of classic fight or flight response where you're going to release a lot of epinephrine. But then we also have sort of that slower response system that runs through the HPA axis, and the end product is cortisol, right? Also released from the adrenal glands. But cortisol, it turns out, is a little bit more sensitive to psychological stress. So if we're thinking, oh, you know, I'm so stressed to my boss, they want me to do this project and I can't do it, and I have these bills to pay. And I don't know what I'm going to do about, you know, my neighbor who's, who's harassing me. You know, we all these things that we're ruminating on all the time. 
And those thoughts alone are processed through an area of your brain called the, the BDNF, um, bed nucleus of the stria terminalis. <laughs> so the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, his job is basically to feed in to that stress center into the hypothalamus and say, oh, there's, there's a problem, some, there's a threat, release cortisol. But really the threat is just us ruminating on our problems. So it's a, a perceived threat that actually have as big a reaction physiologically as, you know, maybe getting punched in the face or like, you know, your neighbor shouting at you. You could think yeah, yourself yeah, into a stressful sure. stage. It, it's, we, we are the, the thing that we are the most sensitive to is social evaluation, perceived social evaluation. And that's because we've, I've put people on a treadmill and I've made them run a time to exhaustion task, which you've probably seen or, or read about to put people on a treadmill and you basically run them until they're, they're going to fall off. Right. <laughs> um, fun times. Fun times. Yeah. And, and we've had them run for 30 minutes, at 85% max heart rate. We've had them stick their hands. These are all like, you know, hands in a bucket of ice, which is called the cold presser test. And, and contrary to what a lot of people think, you know, I'm in the business of stressing people and cortisol is actually hard to move and it's good, right? Because you don't want to just like start flapping your hands and some of your cortisol levels go, go up really high. So with these studies, we do see an increase in adrenaline because there's like a lot of physical activity, but cortisol, it, it didn't go up, didn't go up at all with these, with these studies. Um, except when we, the highest I've gotten cortisol in a lab is when I bring people into a lab and I do something called the trier social stress test. So this is where they come into the lab. We have a panel of judges who are not friendly and the person stands there and they have to give a five minute of, of interview where they're being evaluated. And then after that five minutes, they have to do uh, subtraction out loud. <laughs> they're like basic math. They will say like, take the number 1749 and subtract 12 from that, and then 12 from that number, and then 12 from that number. And then when they make a mistake, you know, the panel is kind of not friendly in correcting them. So this is 10 minutes in a room being socially evaluated. And these, their cortisol levels were, <laughs> I mean, super high. So it was so stressful for me. I'll never do it again because I, I hated putting people in that situation. Um, but it was the highest I've ever seen cortisol levels in my hands in, in a lab situation. And really, they were just standing there talking. Wow, that's like kind of a simple, you know, physically, you're not really doing much. It's a little bit of a mental kind of thinking. So it sort of feels like uh, the solution to that is just not go outside, not be evaluated. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, not really, because on the other end of that, we know that like loneliness is horrible for your health too. It's, it's actually like just as bad as smoking. Like it's, it's just as bad as obesity. Like loneliness is also a killer. You, you, it's just what one of my colleagues talks about is it's an evolutionary mismatch. It's just that your brain, our brains are 200,000 years old. And, and there was sort of a great leap forward about, you know, 40,000 years ago, but where we sort of acquired language. Um, but for the, for the large, like this, Imagine you have a 30,000 year old brain. <laughs> like it's, this is the world that's adapted for. It's, it's lived its entire life. Oh, its entire existence has been 400 gatherer populations. And then you take it from this group, group of about 150 people. Everybody knows everybody, everything's predictable. World, we're, we're here today because we were able to rely on other humans, right? So we, we rely on these close relationships. We've survived ice ages because of these cold, these really close relationships. But now you drop that brain into a modern society where it has thousands of friends on social media, hundreds of people that you work with, hundreds of people at your school, and your, your brain can't handle this. It's, it's not evolved for this. It's not ready to deal with it. And so social, you know, social pressure, social stress is really where, where we fall apart. Sounds overwhelming for the, the, the brain that we have, but for, in terms of stress management, I, I feel as though your kind of your self-talk would be the, the obvious starting point. So if you're getting evaluated in a situation or you're especially stressed, um, would your kind of your, your inner dialogue be a kind of a, a route to managing stress more effectively, or is there other ways to manage stress more effectively? Yeah, there's lots of, I mean, and that's the good news, right? The good news is you don't have to hunt down your lunch. <laughs> so that's awesome, right? <laughs> you are feeling stressed about by the thoughts in your head and, we could talk about managing those thoughts. And, and when you say learn how to manage your thoughts, it sounds like super easy, but it's really, it's really hard because 
The other problem with our stupid brains is that there's also uh, what's called a negativity bias. So your brain is literally hardwired to think negative thoughts and to it, it gets rewarded by thinking negative thoughts. So we, if I showed you a hundred images really quickly, you'd see the negative one more quickly than you would the positive ones. So we tend to, we tend to remember negative events over positive events. We tend to ruminate on it. And it, you know, when you think again, like evolutionarily, this makes sense. Like we should have been sensitive to negative events. If you were walking down a pathway and there was a bush moving around and you thought, oh, I bet that's going to be like a beautiful bunny and, and he's going to come out and I'm going to have this extraordinary experience. And it was like a tiger, you died, right? But if, if you thought, oh, the, something horrible is about to happen, it happened, you were more likely to pass on those, oh, something horrible is about to happen genes, right? So we kind of select for being negative. And so just being aware sometimes that your brain is, is hardwired to think negative thoughts is, is a little bit helpful because we, you know, not, knowledge is power. But there's a lots of really great ways of combating rumination and and again recognizing that the same thing is not going to work for everybody because we're all unique and amazing but things like that are demonstrated to work right we, everyone talks about mindfulness um actually our keynote speaker at neurosports is one of the leaders in the field of mindfulness so she's going to talk a lot about her work using mindfulness especially with combat um, athletes um, if you can um, meditate, certainly um, meditation has been shown to be an amazing way of sort of quieting your brain and combating um, stress. In particular, um, the more that you can um, meditate, but use sort of compassion meditation. So thinking compassionately about- That's what I was gonna touch on, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it's crazy because again, your brain doesn't wanna do this. <laughs> your brain wants to think like all those negative thoughts. But sort of forcing yourself to appreciate and take those moments to appreciate what you love about your friends, what you love about your family. And over time, we actually see sort of changes in the brain. We're at a resting state. The areas of the brain that we associate with happiness, like into the cortex, the ACC, we see activity in now these areas that tend to, that we tend to see people who are just happier. So by thinking these, you know, sort of compassionate thoughts, you can actually sort of change your brain's sort of natural state over time, right? It's just like going to the gym, nothing happens quickly. <laughs> um, and, and a lot of people I think would find, you know, even just seeking therapy to be helpful. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy in particular, is a fantastic way of combating stress. Sometimes we think about seeing a therapist or a psychologist as something that we would do if we're depressed or we have something clinically wrong with us, but you know, psychologists are there to help everyday people with everyday problems. And we're everyday people <laughs> with everyday problems. And when you're feeling a lot of stress in your life, that's the perfect time to go talk to a therapist or talk to a psychologist and you know, potentially use some of these CBT techniques to learn how to control those runaway thoughts. Um, uh, so those are a few different ways that we could keep going, but you probably know some there's, the idea is to find something that you're willing and able to do and, and stick with it. Exercise is actually shown to help with stress too, which is you know fantastic. Yeah, I love the idea that uh, you know, uh, exercise is a stress and adding an additional stress such as exercise is uh, you, you would think on the surface that it would kind of backfire or cause more trouble, but in actual fact, it, kind of, it, it seems to make you more resilient. And I guess that just shows how like there's different types of stress. So there's kind of like good and bad stress that not necessarily, it's not black and white, but like the stress, I guess it exists on a spectrum. Yeah, some people use the term stress for like good stress. But when, when we talk about stress, as far as the kind of the stress that we don't want to deal with, this, these are really thre perceived threats. Um, and it's the, it's in, at the end of the day, that's what matters. It's not even the event that matters. We could experience the same event, but if you perceive that to be bad, that, that's all your brain needs to start having a stress response, right? Yeah. Um, but exercise, you go, you go to the gym and you release um, irisin, um, exercise hormone, right? BDNF. Um, the, the cytokine changes that happen with exercise, these are all amazing for your brain, especially BDNF. They release that specifically when you exercise and it's associated with all kinds of beneficial outcomes. So exercise is absolutely one of the best things you could do for your, so it's like if you can just sleep and eat right and exercise, you'll live forever. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's as simple as that really. Just those three, that's all you need to do. You'll be, you'll be golden, you'll be good. Well, I, I, well, you know, my, I was saying when my, my good friends are nutritionists, but I, I'll die early because I don't want to eat well. <laughs> I'll exercise and sleep well, but eh. the nutrition, yeah, 
the food environment is a whole other podcast that is oh it's a minefield but we'll we'll go one at a time and um yeah exercise is uh, a game changer and it can it can do so much so much good for you um i just you you were talking a little bit there about how you look at a situation it reminds me of uh, like victor frankl and he said you know um when he was in the concentration camps and he was able to like i guess i think the word is like appraisal or he was able to look at the situation and derive meaning from it so um yeah i think it kind of he was a therapist himself or a psychologist so it's like uh not to say that's what you could achieve with therapy but uh something along those lines where you can strengthen strengthen your 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 outlook to be able yeah. to deal with more uh challenging situations with more work through something like therapy i just i like to promote like mental health and, and therapy because uh it's it's so beneficial yeah, and, and you're right, like you'll you'll never be able to control what other people do, you know, what happens to you in the world, but you can control how and what you think. And I think that's much more powerful than people understand. That's the real power, yeah, to, to be able to control, I guess, you know, uh, how you think or how you respond to things. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. So since you like first got into to research uh, up till now. Uh, have you changed your mind on kind of any of your findings or anything? Have you, have you kind of, I'm, I'm sure you have updated like your, your outlook on things, but is there any kind of key things that you've really been like uh, changing your, your outlook on or your opinion on? Well, I think as opposed to my outlook, I've switched research areas a little bit just because, you know, doing more of the human performance because I, well, that started because I had, I had a student who wanted to look at exercise and brain. And I'm like, well, I have an EEG machine. That's easy, but I'm, I don't know anything about exercise <laughs> other than the fact that I go to the gym. So I don't think that qualifies me. So I called uh, one of my, my friend Jose that we were talking about and I was like, hey, you want to collaborate? And so we did that study together and it was really great finding, you know, we, we had people run on a treadmill and we showed that at a very um, sort of deep level in their brain level, the amygdala, they had a, a little bit of protection against sort of negative pictures. Um, and so we were really excited about that and we found that with our other other friend Corey Peacock um, and, and our and our other friend Julius Thomas, who had just retired from the NFL and he was starting to come back to school. And so this group of us, it just felt like we couldn't stop coming up with experiments. You know, Julius coming from sort of more psychology, me more neuroscience, and then Corey and Jose exercise science. And, and we we ended up doing a bunch of studies right away because we would, so for example, with Corey. I had a couple of papers on what sometimes people talk about is the warrior gene, you know, COMT. And I was talking to him about it and he said, and he said, well, what, well, what does it look like in, in fighters? And, and I was like, I don't know. He's like, wait, there's something called the warrior gene and no one's actually looked at this gene in fighters. <laughs> Cause everything that we tend to do on my side is, is college students and they study all trained people. So even just through the conversations and the vocabulary and trying to understand how we were defining things, you know, cross disciplines was, was really cool. And so we did, we, we, we looked at a bunch of MMA fighters and we found that they tended to, at a significantly higher level, carry the variant that helps people perform better under stress, which is what sometimes is talked about as the warrior quote unquote variant. Um, so people who have this variant, it's they have a difference in the way that they um, clear out dopamine. And so when you put them in a stressful situation, that increase in dopamine that happens with stress kind of puts them in the sweet spot. And I think we had about 50% of MMA fighters had it relative to what we see in all of our, our other studies, which is about 21% of people. So, you know, like things like that, where you just have these conversations and so so much of that has happened serendipitously. And, and at the conference, you know, we have neuroscientists coming together, physical therapists coming together with medical doctors and exercise scientists. And it's been pretty amazing to see people who would never have known each other. You know, they're starting to work together and they're starting to cross fields and and really try to understand things better because in my field we have a certain way of talking about things and describing things exercise science has their own way and i think when you're willing to sort of get out of that academic silo it's pretty amazing you know the the work i think the work is better when you do that yeah the collaboration can be amazing yeah like two two by two can be you know six or whatever it can just be much more than uh what you're doing on your own so is that ability that warrior gene is that like trainable. So let's say, for example, someone uh, doesn't necessarily have the gene, could they start MMA and could they become better at handling stress and carry that over to like situations outside of uh, combat sports? Well, there were certainly 
plenty of, because only 50% had it. And these were all, you know, UFC, Bellator level. So there were plenty of them, half of them that were doing just fine. So it probably does give them some advantage, but it's only a small change. It's really just the difference in the way you break down dopamine in your prefrontal cortex. Um, unfortunately, because it's a SNP, it's a, it's a polymorphism on the gene. There's nothing you can really do if you were kind of born with that nucleotide. <laughs> so until, you know, there, there's this gene editing technology now called CRISPR that's getting better and better. So maybe <laughs> once <laughs> you want to start biohacking yourself, you can give yourself the, all the variants you want. Um, I, would, I joked around my class that if that ever happens, I'm going to give myself a myostat mutation. So I have naturally big muscles. But <laughs> Oh, yeah, like those, I, what are they? Is it like a Belgian cow or something? And it's like, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah it's just grossly over oversized. <laughs> I'm not above it. I'm not above it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, one of your one of your studies, uh, the analysis of the the dark triad scores. Um, so, what did what did you? I am the greatest was the the title. What did you you find in that in that study? Um, because the dark triad is kind of like, I guess it's kind of like a pop culture kind of topic almost but uh yeah, yeah. it's a little pop culture -y. it's like still still sexy it's like psychopathy narcissism and machiavellianism you know these three personality yeah. traits there was a russian study that showed that that boxers tended to have um these traits but we didn't we didn't see it i mean there's a there's a cultural difference um but we didn't really see that and and in fact when we studied when we looked at um nfl players and we looked at and the May fighters, um, we're, we're publishing this now, so don't tell anybody. <laughs> um, they they were fine, you know, emotionally. They I think that with the NFL, I mean, players a little bit more aggressive and aggression and hostility. But other than that, they cognitively, but they were young, all young population, um, but very healthy overall, cognitively healthy. Would I be jumping to a conclusion saying here that the brain is plastic and you can kind of train it to be, I guess, Good at different things even though it doesn't have a natural affinity you know maybe it helps to be machiavellian but if you are fast or if you are very strategic at a particular sport you can learn that machiavellian ability maybe yeah i'm not sure i don't i don't think we know we know that again like you know some people in the fighters in russia tend to be have that personal trait but fighters here don't and it could just be that they don't the way that we train fighters here the way, the way that the culture is um, you know, nobody, I don't think anybody really wants to have high psychopathy and narcissism and, <laughs> and, uh, Machiavellianism. No. So I think, I think overall, that's a, that's a good thing that we, we didn't really see those things in, in those guys. Yeah, for sure. We don't want to be a bunch of, uh, Ted Bundy's running around the place. It sounds cool, yeah, but exactly. in practice, it is very scary. Um, another study you had then was the, the state and trade anxiety, um, and in MMA fighters and its relation to performance, would you kind of just explain stage and trade anxiety and then the Yeah, I'm going to hold up on those results though, Alex, because we're um, we're going to be publishing that really soon. Um, it's actually being written right now and student writing it, so I don't want to give away his, um, <laughs> you know, give away his show. It's hard work, no problem at all. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so with stay and trade anxiety, these are things, constructs that we look at pretty, um, pretty often. It's really just, you know, stay is how you feel at that moment where a lot of us feel different levels of anxiety in the moment than we do normally. And so trait anxiety is just our normal level of anxiety. And some people are just always a little bit, you know, a little bit anxious. <laughs> um, where sometimes some people it's it's just when you get them in that specific situation that they feel anxious. Right. Okay. So I guess that's kind of back to uh, know thyself and just kind of know your strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. And it, and it's what makes, I think, science sometimes less sexy than gurus online because you know the, the answer for science is, is always it, it depends like that's always our, our answer because we especially with humans humans are messy and you know we talked about these polymorphisms we all come with different flavors of genes and we all come with different backgrounds and different histories we're gonna we're going to biochemically respond to things differently than each other based on our history we're going to behaviorally respond to things different so there's never like one answer for everybody unfortunately but there's general rules of thumb. And I think that those are what we try to describe to people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, general rules of thumb and yeah, think, take things on an individual basis. And uh, just in terms of like human performance, is there any kind of like daily or weekly practices you would recommend as like general rule, rules of thumb 
to to perform better outside of you know sleep and stress management well, it's got, it sleep. It's got to be sleep is the big one. Like you have to sleep and you, you can look at the studies. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. If you just give somebody sleep extension, how much improvement you see in their performance. So we want to just like underscore sleep with a Sharpie. Um, and then one of the, what we're going to talk about at Neurosports. Um, so then, so the, I should like to mention that the Neurosports conference is going to be January 21st and 22nd on Hollywood beach, Florida. So if anybody's cold, they should definitely come down and join us. But one of the things that we are going to look at um, or listen to some talks is, first of all, mindfulness, how much mindfulness can help with um, sport performance. Um, so there's going to be some data on that and a really interesting session that I'm curious about on, on testosterone supplementation, um, not, not at sort of what we think of as like anabolic steroid abuse, but getting what we, what we would consider like a super physiological dose to people who are a little bit older, maybe men in their 40s. And women, is it a good idea to supplement with TRT testosterone? Um, not, not in a way that would, we would consider to be abuse, but just getting them back to where they were when they were like 30. So I think it's, it's gonna be an interesting session. I, I don't, I'm, I'm curious about that as well. Um, why? And, and, and I think when you think about it, you know, we, we don't question women going on hormone replacement therapy when they're of a certain age but there is kind of this dark cloud around men and testosterone because of the abuse of, I think, anabolic steroids, but we should be able to have that conversation. I think they're going to have that conversation about not thinking about super high levels, non-physiological levels, just like we talk about estrogen replacement therapy. Should we talk about testosterone replacement therapy for men and women? And what would that mean? And they have some data from some studies that they've been doing on that. So I think that's going to be pretty, like, pretty interesting as well. Um, you know, the other thing, obviously, you want to just be safe. One of the things that can impair performance is, is, is unfortunately, like al alcohol, you know, drinking. Just, it's kind of its own little topic. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah well, we can't give men, uh, or it's kind of different for men, is because you give us something and we think, oh, more is better. And then we're kind of yeah. stupid like that. We take too much and we close back. It's <laughs> like with melatonin, right? If two milligrams is good, 20 is even better. <laughs> And actually, uh, my, my, one of my friends, um, Tony Ritchie, is going to do actually a workshop at the conference, and he does a lot of really cool work. He's cool. He, he's cool in general, but he has a background in exercise science, and he picked up a degree in a doctorate in um, sports psychology. So he's actually going to talk about some of the work he does using visualization training. He works with a lot of fighters, and he, I think he tries to activate those mirror neurons um, during sort of visualization. And so he's going to talk He's gonna, it's not so much a talk as much as a workshop. So it's gonna be an, an interactive activity where he's going to, I think, give people a demonstration of sort of what he does to improve performance through doing sort of like um, visualization training. Yeah, I think mindfulness is like completely underutilized in today's society with you know social media really grabbing our attention away from us. And just going back to what I said, I think I'm I feel I, I like fallacies and I feel as though I'm using the, the slippery slope fallacy that like, you know, uh, oh, if I start using a little bit of this thing, I'll, you know, go down hill with it. But yeah, um, just going back to the sleep point you made. So if sleep is so beneficial and we, we extend people's sleep and it produces a huge benefit, why are we not aware of that? Like, so how do we miss the boat on the benefits of sleep when we sleep better? And, and how do we have like almost memory loss when we're sleep deprived and we just don't notice like, oh, I'm underperforming or I'm moody or stressed. I think, well, part of it is that we're just bad at assessing ourselves. You know, we, we suck at it. Uh, if you've ever had your, have you ever been in a bar with a drunk friend, you know that they have absolutely no idea how dumb they're being. <laughs> so we're all kind of like that. So if you want to, if you really want to know about you, you should ask other people <laughs> that will be honest with you because we're just bad. So if we have attentional um, um, decrements in performance, we're not going to notice. Um, I think a lot of the research is kind of new, but I, but I do think that I've seen that people in the performance world are more interested in sleep lately. I think it is. And, and part of it is what we, I talked to my, one of my, my friend Julius have this conversation all the time. And I think part of it is that for so long, especially neuroscientists are just really crappy at communicating information. And it's just, they just live in their own little world and they talk to each other and they use kind of their own little specific terminology. And I think we need to do better as scientists because you can publish all these papers, but if the only people reading them are like your friends and colleagues, it's not, it's not really helpful for the general population. 
So I think what we're seeing now are people who are doing better saying, look, we've extended sleep by an hour and a half and we got this increase in, in um, tennis performance. I mean, there was a paper on tennis, paper on hockey, paper on basketball. They even looked at NBA players who that tweet late into the night as, a, as an indirect measure of their sleep. And the ones that were tweeting late into the night did awful the next day. So I think the, the data are there um, and I think people are appreciating it. It's just that I think the onus is on us as scientists to do a better job communicating it in a way that makes sense to everybody, not just to our colleagues. Yeah, kind of meet people where they're at in the language that they'll understand. And yeah, I think that's a really good point that we really are just not fully aware of like how we're behaving or our performance. So it's good to review things. And an idea that you're giving me now is I used to track my sleep. I used to, uh, uh, you know, just note it. Um, but I think I'll actually start keeping like a sleep journal because if sleep is what we spend 30% of our time doing, I'm never, I'm not going to regret it. Like it's going to be one of the best investments I can make and I know it, it can be better. So that's a really effective uh, approach that I, I think will really pay off for me. Is yeah, there I any- think you're right too. Well, as a, as a quick point, like I, I'm doing a study, study right now and I, I'm aware of that, but I'm, I'm, I've been blown away lately because we have people wearing these little sleep watches, but then we also have them filling out a sleep diary. And I can't tell you how many participants have come in and, and have made comments like that. Like I, I've been, I've, they're suddenly aware of things that they weren't aware of just by tracking their sleep. So if you go to the National Sleep Foundation website, um, there's plenty of sleep diaries that are freely available to download. And, and I think, you know, 25% of my study subjects have been telling me how, how eye-opening it's been. And they're, they're, they're seeing things and they're seeing patterns that they otherwise just didn't know existed. And so just being in the study, I think has helped them because they've kept a sleep journal. <laughs> so, and, and again, I would Google again, yeah, I think National Sleep Foundation has one. That's pretty good. National Institutes of Health has one. Um, so people can just download them and, and, and track their sleep, just like you said. Brilliant. Yeah, I'll attach that in the show notes. Um, so I'm aware that we're kind of like tight for time. So Jamie, do you have anything that you'd like to mention that we didn't go over and um, you have the conference coming up. Is there anything else you want to uh, speak about that we didn't go over? Um, I don't think so. We know I would love to, yeah, again, have people come to the conference. They can um, find us at neurosports.net. We're on Instagram at society for, for neurosports. Um, you know, come hang out with us, meet, meet all the cool kids and um, you know, share ideas. Yeah. Learn about how to uh, sleep better, have less stress, exercise better, all that good stuff. So yeah. All that good stuff. Yeah. Brilliant. All right, Jamie, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thank you for having me.